The year is 1809, and Hezekiah Niles, the editor and publisher of the Baltimore Evening Post, is in a tough spot. His newspaper appears to be doing well. He has nearly 2,000 subscribers, but below the surface, things are starting to unravel. After paying for newsprint, ink, wages, rent, and equipment, Niles can only eke out what he described as a trifling profit. But earning that trifling profit depended on subscribers paying their bills, and too many of them were refusing to pony up the money they owe. Niles calculated they owed him $12,000, so he took to the pages of his newspaper to publicly call them out. There was no question that Americans loved their newspapers, but most of these people were reading their newspapers for free in libraries, coffee shops, and reading rooms. Or they were subscribers who hadn't paid their bills. Americans believed access to news was their birthright and a vital part of modern democratic life. Perhaps that's why they thought they should get the news without paying for it. And that put Niles and other publishers in a bind. Without subscription revenue, publishers were becoming increasingly reliant on advertising dollars. And advertisers only wanted to buy space and papers with large subscriber lists. They didn't care whether those subscribers were paid or not. It was a dilemma that Niles was never able to resolve at the Evening Post. So in 1811, facing mounting losses and tired of chasing deadbeat subscribers, he decided to close the newspaper. But the lessons Niles learned working at Baltimore's Evening Post helped his next venture flourish. A few months later, he launched the Niles Register. It was an ad-free, subscription-only publication that became America's first weekly news magazine and one of the nation's most widely circulated papers. Today, newspaper and magazine publishers face challenges that Niles could easily understand. But while the publishing industry continues to struggle to make the subscription model work, subscriptions are taking off in other unexpected areas. And the consequences of this shift for both consumers and businesses have been profound. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. Get the story, get it to the paper, get the paper on the street. Netflix is the world's leading entertainment service. Now it's offers a service, you know, anybody can do it. These girls of the circulation department are typing metal address plates for new subscribers. I think Milkmen, for a lot of people, that's their first experience with subscription. We are witnessing nothing short than the end of ownership. And this is pretty profound. And I know this sounds far-reaching, but there's a new world that's opened up, and it's not a world of ownership, it's a world of usership. This is Teen Zuo, the co-founder and CEO of Zuora. Zuora provides software to companies that run subscription businesses. He's also one of the world's leading evangelists 
for the subscription economy. In 1999, Suo joined a San Francisco-based startup called Salesforce.com. He was employee number 11 at a company that now employs more than 55,000 people and has annual revenue of more than $21 billion. Salesforce was a software company that set out to radically transform the relationship between its product and its consumers. Software had traditionally been sold like anything else. Customers bought it and they owned it. Simple as that. When upgrades or new versions were released, consumers found themselves stuck with an obsolete piece of software. But Salesforce had a different idea. What we really saw that because of the internet, that it didn't make sense for software to be delivered on a CD anymore and to have people wrestle with how to install and maintain it. It's, we simply wanted to offer it in the internet, what people now call, you know, in the cloud, if you will. And if we're going to do that, then instead of asking people to buy software with one-time fees, that it made more sense for them to rent it or have a pay-as-you-go model where we'll take care of everything. We'll take care of the maintenance, the backups, making sure it's up and running. And so this whole software as a service industry was born, and we really shifted software to the subscription model that we all find ourselves living in today. Today, software as a service, or SaaS, has become the norm for most web-based businesses and individuals. Instead of paying a couple of thousand dollars to buy a graphic editing program such as Photoshop, you can now get a Photoshop subscription for about $20 a month and cancel it if you no longer need it. Software is one industry where the era of usership rather than ownership has already arrived, and Suo believes it's only the beginning. What's got him excited these days is the extension of the SaaS model to products in the physical world. Because every physical product is now coming off the assembly line with sensors, with connections to the internet. If you buy a washing machine now, it's connected to the internet. If you buy a car now, it's connected to the internet. So now you visualize all these engineers with all the physical products that we use, having that same experience of saying, that's how my customers are using my product. That's how much they actually drive. That's how much detergent they actually put into the washing machine. And so the same revolution that really took hold in the software sector to completely transform it into a service, it's starting to happen in the physical world. And that's that's really exciting. Our whole world is about to change again. At Zuora, Zuo works with companies that, at first glance, might seem unlikely to embrace the end of ownership. Take the company Caterpillar, for example. They manufacture heavy equipment for the construction and mining industries. Well, we used to play this game. You know, it's late at night, we're out at dinner, and we used to ask ourselves, like, what is the industry that's going to be last to fall? Is there an industry that will never make the transition? We used to talk about, well, how about like, like heavy machinery? How about like excavators? How about, how about tractors, right? Like, how do you, how do you subscribe to a tractor? And we started working with, you know, a company like Caterpillar a few years ago. And what we found that it wasn't really about the machinery. People weren't looking to buy an excavator. They were looking to move some dirt. So if you can go to the customer and say, look, how many tons of dirt are you looking to move? And why don't we charge you for that? Tuo believes that to operate successfully in the subscription economy, companies need to develop long-term relationships with their customers. 
They need to understand what those customers are actually trying to accomplish. And in many cases, that means a subscription makes more sense than a sale. So that's what we discovered. And so any company is able to rethink what they do, start from the customer, understand what the outcomes the customer are actually looking for, and then use modern technology, including smart devices, to achieve that outcome, right? It's not really about the robot vacuum. It's really about keeping your house clean. And if I can keep your house clean for $30 a month, isn't that something that you would pay for? At the same time Salesforce was turning software from ownership to usership, two other Silicon Valley entrepreneurs were looking for ways to disrupt another deeply entrenched business. They didn't start out with a subscription-based model, but when they finally stumbled upon it, they created a powerhouse that has revolutionized an industry. We started Netflix in April of 1998. And at the time, the only thing we were trying to do really was do video rental a different way. And the original model, there was not a huge amount of innovation. Mark Randolph is the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix. Our model was to have a video rental store on the internet that carried every movie available on DVD at the time. And instead of you walking into your corner video store to pick it up, we would mail it to you. But that's pretty much where the innovation stopped. We had due dates. We had late fees. It was a regular video model. For a year and a half, Netflix tried to make their regular video model work with little success. Then desperation drove them to innovation. Reed Hastings, my co-founder and I, were in the Netflix warehouse one afternoon and at the time, we probably owned several hundred thousand DVDs, the great majority of them that were sitting on the shelves in our warehouse. And I remember us talking about how useless it was having all the DVDs sitting here doing nothing. You'd finish a disc, you'd mail it back, then you'd have to come to the website and pick out the next one. And we said, well, let's cut that friction out. Let's have them start off by making a list of movies they want to see and we can automatically mail it to them. And then came the big intuitive leap, which said, well, rather than charging them $4 each time they want to swap out a disc, why don't we just let them watch as much as they want in a month? It'll be unlimited, all you can eat, and we'll just charge them a regular monthly fee, a subscription. At the time, there weren't a lot of places that Netflix could look to see how a subscription model might work. In the 1920s, a publisher named Harry Sherman created the Book of the Month Club. It sent members a new book every month in exchange for a commitment to buy a fixed number of volumes over the course of a year. In the 1950s, the Columbia Record Club lured new subscribers by offering 12 albums for a penny. But it was hard to unsubscribe, and many people soured on the experience. Netflix's original offer was 30 days free and then $19.99 a month for all the DVDs you could watch. No due dates, late fees, or shipping charges. Thousands of people signed up. But the real question was, would they stay 
once the free month was over. And I remembered distinctly that day, running back and forth every 10 minutes, asking our analytics folks, has anyone canceling yet? Who's canceling? And it became clearer over the course of the day that in fact, people weren't canceling. And as it came through, I think it was something like an 86% retention rate for the first month, which was a phenomenally good number for us. And I knew that we had something that was gonna work at that point. From that humble beginning, Netflix has grown to become one of the most successful subscription services in the world with more than 200 million paid subscribers. It's a business model that has been widely emulated. Companies strive to become the Netflix of books or of video games, and even the Netflix of food. My name is Matthew Wadiak. I'm the founder and former COO of Blue Apron. There are a lot of ways to sell food to consumers, but until Blue Apron came along, selling it by subscription was not really on anyone's radar. Matthew Wadiak was a chef with an entrepreneurial bent when he was approached by a friend named Matt Salzberg. Salzberg was lamenting how difficult it was to cook the kind of meals he wanted to cook at home. It was expensive and time-consuming. Ingredients were sometimes hard to find, and so too were recipes that you could trust. Surely, there were a lot of other frustrated chefs out there who would welcome getting great recipes and fresh ingredients delivered right to their door. And so the idea of meal kits was born. The idea was to have recipes and perfectly proportioned ingredients delivered to the subscriber's home within 24 hours so they could make and eat a fresh meal for dinner. In August 2012, Wadiak and his co-founders shipped the first orders from a commercial kitchen in Long Island City. I think, like, you know, the first boxes that we sent out, obviously, we didn't know what was going to happen. But it was literally one of those things where we sent boxes out to friends and family and a few folks that we kind of knew through the grapevine. Like our first week was only like 40 boxes. It was very small. And within hours, there were social media posts of people tagging us and writing about it. The second week, there were a few people we didn't know that had joined as subscribers and then by the third week, the majority of our customers were unknown to us, which is fascinating. Today, Blue Apron has more than 300,000 customers worldwide. And the global meal kit industry is valued at more than $10 billion. Wadiak left Blue Apron in 2017. And a year later, he started Cook's Venture, an innovative, vertically integrated poultry company committed to a more sustainable food chain through regenerative agriculture. Cook's Venture sells its heirloom chickens and other meats to grocery stores, restaurants, and directly to consumers through an online subscription service. Ten years ago, selling food through subscriptions was an exotic and to many people impractical idea. Today, Wadiak believes that for many home chefs, looking for healthier and more sustainable options, meal kits are an obvious choice. 
if shopping is inconvenient for you, or you live in a food desert, or you don't have the quality of ingredients that you want in your local neighborhood, or you want to explore different kinds of cooking, you know, having staples like food delivered to your house and a subscription make a lot of sense. And it's a huge part of their revenue. So, you know, it, when used properly, it's, it's just a modern convenience. Meal kit companies such as Blue Apron are part of a much broader, multi-billion dollar subscription box industry. Pet foods, shaving products, wine, cosmetics, even underwear are all available at your doorstep for a flat fee. And companies that never considered embracing a subscription model are now jumping on the bandwagon. Taco Bell is experimenting with a Taco Lover's Pass. Subscribers get one taco a day for 30 days for a subscription fee of between $5 and $10. General Motors estimates that offering subscriptions to owners of GM cars for enhanced security, mapping, and data analytics could bring in an additional $20 to $25 billion by 2030. For companies, the subscription model offers the promise of predictable, recurring revenues, something that's highly valued by investors. They also get a treasure trove of data about their customers and how they're using the product. That behavioral data is so valuable for helping organizations figure out where to go next with their product offering, with their pricing, with everything. Robbie Kelman Baxter is the author of the book, The Forever Transaction, and works with many companies in the subscription economy. And so being able to track, you know, what makes somebody join, but also what gets them engaged, what gets them to make our products and services a habit, which features are they using, which features aren't they using, and what does that mean about what we should do next? I think that's tremendously important and increasingly is something that that organizations are, are getting pretty sophisticated about. Ironically, the industry that has struggled the most to adapt to the new subscription economy is the one that's been at it the longest, publishing. When the internet arrived in the 1990s, publishers abandoned their well-established subscription model in favor of giving their online content away for free. They hoped advertisers would reward them for their increased readership. When this new way of publishing became open and available to the news industry, the decisions that were being made in the 90s by the journalists and the commercial leads lent into the way that the news industry was making money, which was, oh, this is a brilliant way for us to publish, get more eyeballs, get more people seeing it, we can drive to scale, and we'll make loads and loads of money out of advertising. That's Katie Vanek-Smith. In 2000, she was the digital director of the Times Online in the UK. The Times, whose print edition has been around since the 18th century, was one of the first newspapers to give their online content away for free. Vanek Smith was watching the numbers closely, and she didn't like what she was seeing. Yes, readership was way up, but the amount that advertisers were prepared to pay to reach those readers was dropping sharply. 
I could see very quickly that if the advertising dollar was going to decline in value and you were going to publish more and more of your content available for free, you were basically creating a perfect storm. And a perfect storm whereby I could read everything that I was reading in the printed edition for free. So why would I buy it? Yet the advertising return was declining very rapidly. So it was very clear to me within 18 months of being the digital director of Times Online that the model was at that point already unsustainable. What followed was 10 years of Vanek Smith trying to convince her publisher, Rupert Murdoch, that the Times would need to embrace paid subscriptions for its online content. They needed to go back to what they had always done for their print edition. She also tried to bring the Times' reporters and editors on side with her plan to charge for content, even though it would inevitably mean fewer readers on their site. That proved to be a greater challenge. You were going to journalists and the editors of the Times and you were saying, well, look, even if the best-case business model scenario plays out, you will go from having... 35 million unique users on your website every month to maybe 3 million. So that's quite a tough thing to hear when you've grown up in an industry that values scale and eyeballs and audience as the sort of shiny golden goose of why you're there and what you're doing. In 2010, the Times implemented a paid subscription model for its online content. And two years later, the paper reported a profit for the first time in its history. It turned out that readers were willing to pay for content if they were given something worth paying for. Katie Vanek-Smith left the Times in 2014 and spent four years as president of the Wall Street Journal. In 2019, she surprised many in the media world when she became co-founder and publisher of a new venture called Tortoise Media. I think we all feel in our different ways that the news has become a lot more noisy and it felt as if there was a place and a space to potentially have a slower, more reflective form of news journalism that was not about the breaking news, but really about the issues driving the news. Tortoise's motto is slow down, wise up. And it offers just a handful of stories every week. There are no ads, and the content is available only to people who pay to access it. But Vanek Smith says, don't call those people subscribers. So we sort of said, okay, we're going to be slower, and we're going to build a business that ultimately isn't a subscription business. So whilst I love the subscription economy, we can't compete with subscription businesses. We are building something that's a membership economy. And there is a difference because a subscription relationship works for news brands that produce a lot of content because a subscription relationship is a transactional relationship, right? So every month you pay your subscription and your value exchange is based on, to be honest, how much you use it. So to be a really good subscription business, be it Spotify, be it Netflix, be it the New York Times, it is built on a volume of content that you must deliver. It is a sort of very expensive, labor-intensive business in a content creation world. 
One of the privileges of Tortoise membership is the opportunity to participate in daily story meetings called Think Ends. It gives readers a voice in determining which stories get covered and how they're covered. It's an opportunity not available to your average New York Times subscriber. Because we weren't doing breaking news, we could never compete in a subscription economy set of dynamics. We set out because we were building our newsroom with and for our members, i.e. an open newsroom that gave people a seat in our editorial conversations. We ended up building a business that was very much looking at the membership economy rather than the subscription economy. Tortoise Media currently has more than 80,000 members and about two more years of venture capital funding before it needs to become profitable. It's too early to tell if that will ever happen, but what is clear is that by talking about their users as members rather than subscribers, Tortoise is riding what appears to be the next iteration of the subscription economy. I use the phrase membership economy rather than subscription economy because I think the most important part is the way that the organization is thinking about their customers and treating the customer like a member. Membership is a mindset and subscription is a pricing decision. It's a tactic. Robbie Kelman Baxter is a big fan of the membership economy. In her consulting business, she helps companies transition from subscribers to memberships. A lot of businesses start with, we want to get some subscription revenue, and they focus on getting people to sign up for the subscription revenue. But if they don't really dig in and understand the process that gets somebody from the moment of transaction to relaxing into the membership and saying, I'm going to pay for this for the foreseeable future because I trust that this organization is going to continue to help me achieve my goals. That is the really important place to focus. So what I encourage organizations to do is not just focusing, let's say, on the content itself, but on the experience that is actually going to bring people back to your product and make it a habit. Because if you don't have engagement you're not likely to have retention. And if you don't have retention, then the subscription pricing isn't really working for you. According to the financial services company UBS, the subscription economy will grow 18% annually for the next four years, hitting $1.5 trillion in 2025. That trajectory seems unstoppable. But when you ask people inside the industry what could possibly kill the golden goose, their answer is invariably subscription fatigue. Now what people say when I tell them that I spend my time in subscriptions is, I had this subscription to such and such and they wouldn't let me cancel and they overcharged me and I can't get out of it or I have a subscription and I don't even use it. I haven't been to the gym in three months and I even forgot about this other subscription I was paying for. And Robbie, can't you tell your subscription clients to stop charging us on subscriptions. They're exhausting. And that's subscription fatigue. It comes with the territory of so many subscriptions being out there, but focusing on thinking about what does the member actually need and then optimizing pricing to support that, I think that's not going away. Government regulation may ultimately be necessary to curb the worst excesses of the subscription economy. 
most consumers would embrace rules that make canceling a service as easy as signing up and that restrict automatic renewals. The enthusiasm around the subscription economy is currently at a fever pitch, fueled in large part by pandemic-induced changes to shopping habits that may well be here to stay. According to one survey, 78% of global consumers now subscribe to some kind of subscription service. The extent to which we are actually entering an era of usership rather than ownership remains to be seen, and many companies that are currently experimenting with subscriptions may find them more trouble than they're worth. But there's at least one thing we can all agree is definitely worth subscribing to, this podcast. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. If you'd like to learn more about any of the guests on today's show, please visit DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. Thanks for listening.